Now let's see if this is going to work. Um, the video for the first time, going to maybe play with it tonight. I'm going to be kind of focusing here, but uh, in my notes, Blinkist, what I should be doing. But um, let's go on. This is, the, this is the setup before I get into the episode. This is the behind the scenes of the Relentless College Entrepreneur Podcast. The future and what's coming. Uh, the podcast has actually been doing well since I haven't been as... Um, attentive to the podcast. I, I mean, I'm getting hundreds of views from multiple different episodes, and that's really what's getting me to keep on going. Eventually, I will have rebranding, hence a relentless college entrepreneur. I'm no longer in college, but I'm working now, and uh, this is actually a place where I work, Cohatch, shout out Cohatch. Uh, amazing places for co-working space, for free roam and office space. If you're on a hybrid or you work from home, maybe you talk to your employer and get yourself a co-hatch because they're all throughout Indiana and they're expanding. Indianapolis, I'm in Broad Ripple right now in their podcast room, and that's why I love it. Um, shout out EJ as well. He's the one who gets me this pass to have this stuff, which is awesome. So before we jump in for like the 10th time, um, shout out Blinkist because I use a lot of Blinkist summarizes and as well as uh, the psychology of money the book um, I want to deep dive I'm probably gonna be mentioning it on the podcast when we go live um, basically what is happening with this uh, book and I want to deep dive into the chapters uh, after I give the summary to make it make sense and then deep dive into the chapters to make it make sense uh, Okay, so now that we got that rolling, pull up the notes. Looks like we're solid. Kind of, this is how this is how it goes usually. Uh, I'm adjusting. I'm making sure I played with this mic a little bit. Made sure it was the right on the right uh, setting that I wanted it. Uh, the gang is up. Uh, we're off mute, and I have my headphone adjuster right there. They have two, so. Hence, I'm gonna be looking for guests and um, I'm trying to hit up really cool people that you guys would enjoy and uh, benefit from listening and gaining from their knowledge as well. So a little bit of update on behind the scenes of the Relentless College Entrepreneur. But let's deep dive into this uh, mofo. And um, okay, so this is kind of, I do the one, two, three, one, two, three. Because hundreds of people are listening, but it's not right in front of me, but eventually they will. So um, that's kind of the routine. I kind of study a bit. Uh, I take my notes. I summarize the book. I have a lot of knowledge stored up currently. Listen to the blink. I've read the, the, a decent amount of the book, uh, and I feel like it's really good to set going. Um, okay. So... Welcome back to the Relentless College Entrepreneur, and it is episode 78 or 79, I can't remember. You might have to look in the description. We will see. Um, I'm not 100%. I actually filmed already an episode, and then I re-listened to it, and I sat down, and I thought about it, and I'm like, I just felt like I needed to read a bit more, uh, 
go over the summaries and my notes a bit more before I set off. I went deep dive into a specific uh, chapter of the psychology of money, uh, which was risk and luck, or luck and risk, one of the two. Um, and I realized that I want to summarize before I release that episode. And I've learned a lot more uh, about that chapter. And as I deep dived, dived, not died, I didn't die. Luckily, I woke up this morning, praise God. And I highlighted and I really went through and nitpicked some more after the episode. And I'm like, I feel like it could be better. So we're going to be redoing that episode. But I wanted to give you guys one on Sunday. It's currently 8 p.m here in Broad Ripple or Indianapolis, Indiana. And I thought it's Sunday. I want to give uh, people the episode tonight to drop, to listen, start their Monday off rock solid. And if you're listening to this right now, I really want you to just have gratitude. I want you to think about it before we get into the book, Psychology of Money by Morgan Hazel. Um, take deep breaths. You're going to kill this week. I really want you to sit and think because um, a guy that I was lucky enough to volunteer with as well as uh, have a party with, his name was uh, Caleb Swanigan, and he played for Purdue and then went to the Trailblazers and then went to the Memphis Grizzlies, and he recently passed away this past week. Now, I wasn't close to the guy. I wasn't super, super close to the guy. I met him once. I got to hang out with him. I got to shoot some hoops with him. We volunteered with my fraternity Phi Gamma Delta and he joined us um, and he brought all these kids uh, with the, the YWMCA, uh, actually it's the YWCA, and basically these kids that are growing up not in the best area, Muncie, their parents don't have a whole lot of money, we're playing basketball with them, just kind of mentoring, helping them and talking to them. And Caleb was there and uh, he was a really good guy, he really was and it's unfortunate to see his passing, but I believe there's something that we can uh, learn from this with this unfortunate event of Caleb passing away. It's that we don't know if we're gonna wake up. We could have this rare heart condition. We could have this weird underlying health conditions that we don't know of and we don't wake up the next morning. And that's why it's important every single night to tell your loved ones you love them, uh, to you know not push away mom, dad, or the family too much because the most valuable asset that we have as human beings is time. And we have a limited amount of it that cannot be replenished by any means unless we eat healthy and we work out and that type of stuff and get that type of mindset. But other than that, we have a limited amount of time. We, we all have an expiration date, unfortunately, and that's just how it is. And that's what makes life so precious. So this episode is dedicated to Caleb Swanigan. And I have this guitar he broke at the party uh, and hanging in my garage currently. But uh, I, I wanted to open this episode. And again, I wasn't super close to this guy. I'm not like uh, building this type of sob story that I really was close to this guy. I wasn't, uh, but I knew he was a good guy. And I was, I was, um, startled to hear this news that this guy that played college basketball for Purdue, he was an amazing person at Purdue, and then he got into the NBA, and then he he left the NBA, and um, it kind of just spiraled down, and there was, he had diabetes problems. I'm not going to get too much into it, but um, it was very unfortunate. So, Caleb, uh, I, I hope you're listening to this up there, and um, I looked up to you one way or another because I saw you with the kids at the W, uh, the YWCA, and I realized 
this just this honest genuine loving caring person for these kids getting them subway chips a bunch of stuff treating them playing basketball with them you were just trying to have a good time and to bless you and all of your friends and your family around you and i i will um this this episode's a little bit tough in my head although i wasn't close it was uh the fact that this guy was caring and it's just like you can blink and uh, you're gone or someone else is gone and that's just a part of life and what makes it so so delicate and why we have to treat it with the most uh, every day so I want you on this Monday morning when you are probably listening to it or another morning or afternoon whenever it is and I want you to have the gratitude that you woke up and you're currently listening to this and to love your loved ones tell mom your brothers your sisters your dad whoever else your friends that you're happy um, and you love them and because they're, everyone is gonna have their time uh, when that time comes. So just wanted to open up with that. I know it was a little bit of a more of a longer opening until we got into the psychology of money, but I really wanted to open with that because I feel like some people need that and just really have that gratitude starting off on Monday morning and starting off with a positive note. Come on now, uh, let's get it. So let's div, div, div. Let's deep dive into the psychology of money. So basically from, there's a whole lot I can talk about, but basically in the essence of the psychology of money is that in economics textbooks and classes, business classes I've been in, accounting, finance, uh, business stats, uh, economics, uh, a bunch of other stuff as well, is that they talk about the statistics, the numbers, the this, the that, but they don't talk about the psychology of money. And that was the interesting thing into money. So um, shout out Dr. Snow, he really put me on economics. I really loved this book. Uh, and you should make your students read this, Nathaniel Snow, if you're listening to it. Um, so the way that the first thing opened up, and I loved how the book opened up because it was right on the, right on the, the path going 100 miles an hour and it was no fluff. It was a, a great book. And I'm going to be deep diving into more specific chapters and later episodes probably, uh, but keep this a little bit brief. So basically everyone has their own experience and the way they invest and they use their money is from the psychology in which they grew up. Poor house, it mattered their income, their financial status growing up, their parents, uh, where they lived at, the demographics, the United States versus uh Russia or somewhere else, no offense, Putin. Uh, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's a lot of different things that come into the psychology of money in which people invest their money. So take a person that came from the Great Depression. This person that lived through the Great Depression lost a lot of money. They're more careful with their money. They're not really looking to invest as much into the stock market and their wisdom is gonna be different from people in current generations wisdom from a 65 year old man versus a 30 or 20 year old man that maybe is a guru at financials or something. Um, it, they're gonna be completely, for the most part, most likely gonna be different because of the psychology in which they were brought up and the time period which they, were, they lived in. So the key message in this little, this little talk right here is everyone has their own experience of the economy and money in which the way they grew up in the time period and luck may have it, luck plays a huge, huge, huge role in people's successes and people don't realize that. So 
we all like to think we know how the world works, but usually only experience a small silver uh, sliver of uh, that reality. And the first thing to understand when it comes to the psychology of money is that we know less than we think we do. And then another main topic of it was the personal experience drives financial decision making. So the reality is this neat idea that came up and uh, in the book, say you see someone that's poor buys a lottery ticket and there's a lot of people that are poor in that in that poverty below poverty um, income status that buy lottery tickets and now if you're listening to this you have a good you probably have a phone you're listening to it on your headphones in your car or something like that it's going to be for the most part 90 percent not everyone but they're going to be okay in life they're, they're going to have a roof over their head they're going to have a car they're going to have a job they're going to be in college whatever it may be and this is what i want you to think because we all for the most part um now i'm not going to jump and make a conclusion that we all have that making buying a lottery ticket rationalizes in our head it's it seems as if it's irrational and we've for the most part at least i have been brought up to know that buying a lottery ticket or putting money in at the casino you're usually going to lose money but it's if you go and just trying to have fun not even putting emotional ties to that money and you like gamble away on roulette a hundred dollars and you're like i'm done after i lose it and you lose it it's all good whatever but the the thing behind what i'm getting at is that when these poor when people that are poor buy lottery tickets we don't rationalize that we're like why are you buying a lottery ticket why like you couldn't you say that the average person in the low income stage spends about four hundred dollars on lottery tickets a year and yet they don't have that four hundred dollars when an emergency comes up majority of them according to the psychology of money by uh, morgan hazel and the fact of the matter is that it's shocking but then we put our shoes we put our feet in their shoes it, we can't rationalize it it's because these people work their butts off and they want to have this higher income status but they don't maybe have the education they don't have the drive they don't have the motivation or they don't know where to start or they're stuck and they just hope for a break they wish for a break and they say all these people that have the money that are driving these amazing cars or um that come into wherever they're working at maybe a gas station or something like that and then they have a nice car and they're always wishing upon this and they just wish they could have what other people have but they can't because they don't make enough money and the only break that they could have is winning the lottery and then i sat there and i rationalized it i thought huh you know what that does make sense because from my standpoint, I grew up in a medium um, middle class home. And I, I mean, I grew up and I, and if you listen to my previous episodes, I didn't always have it good. My family wasn't always in the middle class by any means, but I'm not uh, using that as an excuse or anything. And they'll fall into risk and luck when we get into that in a little bit. And I didn't rationalize this because I've always been taught something and it was the psychology in my head with money that I rationalize that buying a lottery ticket and spending money at the casino is irrational and that you're not going to win. And then I put it into a lower income person's head and stepped in their shoes and thought about it. And I'm like, that would make sense because this is your break. You can't, you don't have, um, 
the luxuries of going on vacation. You don't have the luxuries of getting some other things. So it's a long shot, but you rather have this long shot than not have any shot at all and just save a little bit of money up. So it makes sense. And the crazy, and the, the takeaway from this section is that some of our craziest thoughts can be rationalized or what we think is crazy is rational to another person due to their psychology in which they grew up. So another key point was the economic concepts we use today are still historical infants. There is a lot of things that have happened in the past thousands of years when money came uh, about. And I really want, again, I'm gonna restate it, is the economic concepts we use today are still historical infants. We're still learning about money. And the first money was dated back to 600 BC when the key, the key, the king of Alades of Alade, uh, and Iron Age Kingdom in today's turf, Turkey minted their own coins and that was the first economic uh, concept of money that we saw. And before the Second World War, most Americans worked until they died. Life expect expectancy was lower back then, of course, and even then half of all men above the age of 65 still participated in labor in the 1940s. And things change constantly. So like in the decade in which the average monthly social security check rose above $1,000 adjusted for inflation uh, was in the 1980s. That means, um, oh, going into my notes again, lost my spot, I apologize. The 410k was a principle of funding retirement. This didn't come into existence until 1978, while the Roth IRA retirement scheme was only introduced in 1998. Other key ideas and practices aren't much older. Hedge funds only took off a quarter of a century ago and index funds just 50 years old. Even consumer debt like mortgages, car loans, and credit cards. One of the primary drivers of the economic growth of the United States only became a commonplace after GI Bill made it an easier for the average American to borrow money in 1944. If we're bad at financial planning and decision making, it's not only because it's not because we're crazy, it's because we're greenhorns. And then it kind of goes into the 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 luck and the success of the role of financial success. So let's think about this. Um, which is a little bit of a different topic. Again, I want to state that message so it gets through. Luck plays a bigger role in financial success than you might think. So luck is a tricky topic. Few investors and entrepreneurs would deny that it plays a role in their theory, but it's hard to quantify the extent to which it's responsible for one firm prospering and another failing. We also tend to think that it's rude to attribute other successes to blind chance. As a result, we often end up ignoring the role of luck when it comes to financial decision-making. That's a mistake. And it deep dives into some other things and the investors, billionaires, I really think that cultivated and really brought around what uh, we need to bring luck to the table more often because we look at all these billionaires and we look up to them, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, uh, Warren Buffett, uh, you know, all these crazy people, Albert Einstein, even if you didn't make a whole lot of money, um, you know, Pablo Picasso, all these famous people. 
And then we have to rationalize the luck factor. And even all of them, Bill Gates literally says that it's luck. Luck played a huge role in this. And I'm going to deep dive more into luck and risk and luck uh, in a later episode. That's actually one I was working on before this one. But wanted to post the broader, uh, summarized version of the psychology of money before I dove into that chapter and dissected it. Um, it was the thinking that we think that if we do this, there's an equation to get this. And we just do this equation and then we're a millionaire. Now, the from what I know, and again, I might not know a lot because according to the book, and I do believe in the book, which I learned something, was that we know a lot less than we think we know, especially when it comes to money. Now, I'm investing in, a, I'm building my emergency fund. I'm building my six to eight month uh, emergency fund as well, which is a lot of saving. I'm not investing currently. I do have money in the market, but I'm not adding to that as much as I will in the future, especially with the stock prices being so volatile right now. But I'm not going to get into that. We're talking about the psychology of money. What I was getting at was the fact that I think Roth IRAs is what I'm going for because it, uh, the stock market has had an average return of 12% since it's been opened. Although like the dot-com burst, the recessions, you know, all these financial crisis, crises that have happened, when you zoom out from our volatile stock market currently, we have a 12% uh, increase in our funds. And when you bring in compounding effect, you make a lot more money even uh, in ups and downs. And the whole idea is if you keep it in, and you retire at 65 in a Roth IRA and then it's taxed, um, you will really retire a millionaire. It's the easiest formula to do it, but people don't save like that and put it towards a Roth IRA until later. That's why it's important to invest while you're young. But again, I'm saving right now, so I am not by any means, spoiler alert, I'm not a financial analysis and I don't, um, I, I don't I'm not prof like have a license or anything in that. This is from my books and my knowledge that I have spent a decent amount of time reading 100 plus books in financial literature and life literature, a bunch of other stuff. So what I'm saying is I'm trying to invest in Roth IRAs, but there's no, there's no formula to become a millionaire. And so many people are looking, including me, I'm guilty as all, by all means. And it's this formula, this is equation, how to become a millionaire. And it isn't about the money. It's about having the financial freedom to, if I want to go to Bonnaroo, I can go to Bonnaroo. If I want to get a Shelby GT, I can get a Shelby GT, my, my dream car. Uh, you know, it's, it's not about money because there's a lot more than money because uh, time is one of the most valuable assets. If someone works their whole life, 50 years of working their butts off, never spends time with their family, retires a millionaire, what do they have? What do they have to enjoy? It's this time they gave up with their family. Was it worth the sacrifice that they made to become a millionaire or a billionaire or whatever? And that leverages into the factor. And as well as luck, which is what we're getting at, what's more important. See, our culture in it obsesses over the success, and it's not much help here, unfortunately, but Forbes doesn't celebrate brilliant investors who went broke because they were unlucky and the market took them at a sudden nosedive. It does celebrate the second rate or reckless investors who got lucky and made a fortune. The only the people that made a fortune get the spotlight. And that's what we see in this media, this mainstream. We see these people that are advertising. I became a millionaire in six months. Me, 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 me. I'm just like, shut. Oh my gosh. I just want to like literally like, ugh. 
I hate those people, but uh, these financial gurus that basically prey off people that take their course and that's how they make money. And you know, not everyone's like that. I'm not saying that because I haven't dove super deep into that type of guru type of stuff. But uh, I can tell you right now that it's uh, a lot of luck plays into that as well if you're drop shipping or whatever, if it's the right time, right time period or whatever. But, um, and then there's people, do you have $10,000 in your bank account? Well, I can show you how to become a millionaire and shake manage. It's like if everyone would do it as simple as it is, if everyone could become a millionaire, everyone would be doing it. And that's the, that's the simple of the fact. And it takes a lot more work than people are willing to put in to become a millionaire in most cases and having a lot of luck that plays into it. And, you know, luck doesn't get looked at too much. And Bill Gates, so new topic. Uh, focusing on broad patterns rather than specific cases can help you make better calls. So let's go back to Bill Gates. Bill Gates went to Lakeside, uh, something like that, Lake something uh, high school. This was one of the better high schools growing up and they had computers when they were coming available even though they were thousands of dollars in the average household in income could not afford a computer. Well, Bill Gates got lucky uh, behind that. And we'll dive deep more in another episode of that uh, luck, that risk and luck type of thing. But Bill Gates once said that success is a lousy teacher. As Gates sees it, success, success tricks smart people into overlooking the role of luck, which in turn makes them think that they can't lose. Paradox paradoxically, I just butchered that word, that's a pretty surefire way to assure that you do lose. And when you don't rationalize luck into it, it you, you think that you can't lose, but you can. And this book went into, I'll get into examples in a later episode, but people that have made a fortune, hundreds of millions of dollars in today's money, and they've lost every single penny and lost all of their earnings because of greed. And they believed that they were at the top, they were the smartest, and that they could invest in anything. Now, I'm not downsiding anyone because I know very less I, I, probably than all these investors knew. But the thing was is that they, they took advantage of what they didn't think was luck, that they thought was their success. And we can't foresee everything that happens in the stock market markets or making money or starting a business because it takes the average entrepreneur seven businesses to get one successful business. There's a lot of luck that plays involved. It's the time, if you have the money, the capital, if you're in the right place at the right time, there's a lot of things that fall into this continuous life cycle of moving billions and trillions of moving parts in these actions that we have with people every day, the behavior in which we display on a day-to-day -day basis, the people that we meet, we run into, whatever it may be, there's a lot of luck factors and there's thousands trillions of things that can happen within a day if you leave one minute early if you leave one minute less there's a whole lot of moving parts that you don't see and success and risk plays a huge role into that and i really want you to see that through this because we can study bill gates but the honest truth and even he says is a lot of luck ran into it uh, warren buffett as well he said a lot of luck played into the timing in which i entered the market and what i invested upon and he said if you did the same exact thing that i did uh, when I first started off now, I guarantee you, you wouldn't be as wealthy as myself. And he wasn't being cocky. It was the fact that he knew luck played a huge role in the time he invested and the time he went after things. And all these billionaires know luck played into their favor. 
Bill Gates, for example, when I'm going back to that high school, he was able to look at computers. Whereas if he didn't go to that high school and he went to uh, a different high school, maybe computers would have never been his thing. And this continuously parts, moving parts, he had the luck to go to this school that his father um, sent him to because he was a lawyer. And he was in the United States, which we are so lucky to be upon. I know a lot of people listen outside the United States, but there's amazing countries as well. The United States isn't the only one that's good. Um, and the thinking of this is that the luck uh, in these thousands of moving parts, United States went to this specific high school, loved computers, and started dissecting the computers, and then went to Harvard, and then like was dropped out of Harvard because he realized he had something going and building his own computer and his own team, and he had these guys in this moving part that he fell across in high school that he knew was gonna be like an amazing team and co-founders of the team. And going to the high school Warren Buffett did and having a computer was a one in a million chance. Let me explain. According to the, uh, the book and the statistic of it was that if you were Bill Gates around his age group, around under 20 in high school, and you had a computer, it was one in a million at the time out of all the people. And then there was also Kent, uh, his best friend, which a lot of people might not know, but uh, Kent was a really good friend of Bill Gates growing up and uh, they spread a little bit further apart in high school but they knew they were gonna come back they were gonna go to the same college they were gonna start a business together it's what they dreamed upon and these guys were so close Bill Gates and Kent and Kent got the other side of the roulette that Bill Gates got and it was the fact that one day he went mountain biking and he never came back he died and the chances of someone getting in a mountain biking accident and dying is about one in a million. See, 12 people die in the United States every year from mountaineering accidents, and Kent was one of them. One in a million to die to that, and uh, versus like the people biking, that whole statistic and everything like that, versus the other side, one in a million going to that high school that Bill Gates did, having a computer that I was able to dissect, one in a million. So these, these flip tables in which we think that was the risk of mountain biking and this was the, the luck of Bill Gates, there's a flip coin in every day's life of roulette and we might not get another day. And that's why I started this with that gratitude that I wanted you guys to have. But I'll deep dive later into uh, another episode of success because there are a lot more stories that go into that. So another point was that envy can make you reckless. Capitalism is great at two things, generating wealth and envy. We're always gonna want more, and I remember watching this YouTube video, and it was this, 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 it wasn't even explaining anything. There was a guy that was sitting on a bus, and then a guy with a bike rode past him, and the guy sitting at the bus said, man, I wish I could have a bike to get transportation. And the guy on the bike rode, and then he saw a car that wasn't the best looking car, but it got that guy point A to point B, and that guy on the bike said, I wish I had a car. And the guy in the car looks over and there's a guy driving a nicer, newer car. And he says, oh, man, I wish I had that nicer, newer car. And that guy in that nicer, newer car looked over and it was a guy driving a Porsche 911. And he said, I wish I had a Porsche 911 or that money. And then the guy in the Porsche 911 sees a guy with a 
a, a super exotic car pull up, a Lamborghini Aventador, and says, man, I wish I could have money to do that. See, there's this never-ending psychology of wanting more, and it's just what we envy as human beings for the most part. I try to separate myself from that and try to not envy money as much as possible, but to have the financial success that I, I want to have to do what I want to do and live life and give my family what um, I hope and wish that they would love to enjoy with that type of money. And see, envy kills us because we always want more. And now that there, there's a specific story that there's this guy that has $100 million. He could have retired and said, I'm good, whatever. But this guy took advantage of luck and risk and ended up basically losing $100 million in a span of a year, I believe. He just put balls at the wall and like started investing like crazy and thought he was this, and don't get me wrong, I'm not underplaying this guy. He, you know, like he has 100 million, I don't. So, well, at the time he did. So, you know, I'm not saying or underplaying him or anything like that. What I'm getting at is the story, which is important to dissect. And it was that this guy really did not think that luck played into the role. He thought it was his, he was able just to have this luck and not this luck. He was, he thought that he was just a genius and that he could go after it and make a killing. He lost everything and unfortunately um, killed himself. And see, when we envy more and more and more and never, never is enough, uh, that's when it can kind of get to you and that's life's roulette. And sometimes you don't think it's luck and you think it's just you. But a lot of the time it's being at the right place at the right time and that luck of that coin hitting heads. And that's something that we have to realize and rationalize upon is a luck plays a huge role. Again, that I'm, I'm coming back into that main topic is that luck plays a huge role in what we might not think. And the psychology in which people grew up uh, and which the, the reason why they have the wealth that they have or they don't have the wealth that they have. And a key message of this little chapter, this little key takeaway was that the envy can make you reckless. And the guy's name was Radha Gupta. And Radha Gupta lost $100 million. And he just wanted to become a billionaire. And he just kept on going and going and going and going. And then he did insider trading, which isn't allowed, it's illegal. And you know what? I don't know if he killed himself or not. Someone in the book killed himself because they, uh, uh, let's see, I'm currently there's one thing to get worse, leaving it on the table. Okay, well, actually, Radha, uh, Radha Gupta did not kill himself. I'm sorry, that, that was someone else in the book. Um, but the same thing, he did insider trading, lost all that money. The uh, FBI or whoever confiscated that money, and he was sentenced uh, and lost a huge amount of his wealth because of a stupid decision and seeing that risk in that case and luck should have never been done he didn't uh radha gupta did not care about that or the law and then it came and bit him back in the butt and uh actually bit him a lot more than he could uh, even imagine and he lost more than he made from this insider trading so another key t point of this book is that um, amassing a fortune is easier than keeping a hold of it and I thought this was interesting. And the Radha Gupta story was the fact that this guy became a millionaire, a multimillionaire, had hundreds of millions of dollars, and he just wanted to become a billionaire, and he envied it, uh, he envied money. 
And I'm a Christian, and I've been learned, taught to never envy anything besides uh, God. And that was, or not God, just don't envy um, money or someone or someone else because you are you, and there's no one else to be taken. Everyone else plays themselves in this life. And that's what we have to realize. And to not want more, I mean, not always to want more. Of course, you can want more. Uh, if you make like $40,000 a year, and I'm not saying you can't want more if you make half a million a year or anything like that, but when is enough enough? And that should be something you maybe ask yourself. And there's plenty of people that have made this a mass amount of fortune and a lot of examples in the book, which I'll get into again in a later episode to start to become a longer one. Um, and it's easier to hold on. It's easier to make the money than it is to hold on to it. And I, I can see that myself because I worked all of college and the money's all gone, but hey, uh, we live well I also had to pay for a lot of stuff so um, but that's besides the point and let's see there are lots of Livermore's out there which was another story I'll get into um, through their stories aren't aren't always tra tragic around 40% of all publicly listed companies lose their entirety value over time and the Forbes 400 list of Americans richest people has a 20% turnover per decade excluding cases of death <clears throat> and family transfers of money. So how do you keep what you already have? In another word, per, uh, perseverance. The entrepreneurs who do best stick around for a long time without wiping out. What they all have in common is a little thing called fear. As a multi-billionaire venture capitalist, Michael Mortson puts it, when you're scared of losing, you look at potential wins through a different lens. Few gains are largely enough to justify risking losing everything you already have. And when you take that view, you are much more likely to make better calls, having instilling that fear. Multi-billionaire said that, so I think that's worth listening to. You can be wrong half the time and still make a fortune. So there was this guy, quick story, um, <clears throat> he bought a ton of art. Now, a lot of the art ended up being duds and after holding on to them for 40 years. But one of the arts that he had was a guy from a guy named Pablo Picasso, if you don't know who he is. Pablo Picasso, I'm not getting into that. <laughs> uh, Pablo Picasso, though, like that was, that was the whole thing, though. Like one, one good investment could overturn 12 bad investments and could compound and make you a lot more money. So again... You can be wrong half the time and still make a fortune. So it's diversification in which they, the, the book calls it, which is pretty important, but again, luck plays a role into it. A lot of other moving parts. I can't tell you exactly what to invest to become a millionaire. All I know what I'm doing is a Roth IRA and I'm putting and maximizing as much money as I can put in that Roth IRA because once you invest at the age of 25-ish and retire at 65 and you put like $350 a month in, I believe, you'll retire with about $1.3 million and I'm chilling off that if I can do that. So um, that's the goal and that's a plan. Um, that's a long-term investment with lower risk compared to individual stocks, a lot lower risk. So with the strategy of that you're wrong half the time and you're uh, you can be wrong half the time and make a still make a fortune is the strategy implies that all investments uh, to all investments call it the long tail the tendency of a small number of events to account for the majority of outcomes there's a lot of complex math behind this principle 
but it's simple through when you boil through it and down to the essentials. Basically, when you get a few things right, you can afford to get more things wrong. Failure is inevitable. What really matters is the nature of your success. Put differently, when you're sitting on one Pablo Picasso, you don't worry about the 99 duds in your collection. Boom, bada bing, love it. So let's jump into the final summary of the book. And then I'm going to leave you guys with something uh, like at the end of it. Financial <laughs> Now let's wrap this episode up with the final summary. Financial decision making is a lot messier in the real world than the economics textbooks tell you. Lots of decisions like battery, buying lottery tickets when you're broke aren't rational, but they do make sense in your own way. The same goes for investment choices, which are driven by people's formative experience in their economic economy in their early childhood or adulthood, rather than the cool, appraisal, uh, cool appraisals of current market conditions. Put simply, financial Now let's summarize up this book, which I'm super excited about. Now let's go into the summary of The Psychology of Money by Morton Hazell. So the summary is that the final decision making is a lot messier in real world than economics tech books may tell you. Lots of decisions like buying lottery tickets when you're broke aren't rational but they do make sense in your own way. The same goes for investment choices, which are often driven by people's formative experience of the economy in their early adulthood, rather than cool appraisals of current market conditions. Put simply, financials, financial calls are entangled with psycho psychological factors. So what's the best way forward? Well, we accept that luck plays a role in success, Learn to fear losing what we already have and hedge our bets. That's going to be wrapping up this episode. But before we leave, I thought there was something that I came across that was worth sharing and that I had to leave you with. Oh, of course, it's on my phone. Wait, I might be able to, behind the scenes, pull it up on my... I think I will actually be able to. Uh, I switched my passcode because I thought someone was going to hack me on Instagram. Hmm. Um, do I even have Instagram on my iPad? I don't even know. Girl, you've been logged out. You've been logged out. You've been logged out. Yeah, I know this, dude. <laughs> Bruh. All right, guys, I'm going to have to take you guys down because I got to finish this podcast with something that I saved on my Instagram page. But 
This was the relentless college entrepreneur in his, his home. And uh, this was behind the scenes. So I hope you guys enjoy. Catch you on the next one.